Turning your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah chapter 7. I'm on the fence about saying, go ahead and sit down. Go ahead and sit down. It's a long one today. (laughs) You know, when you're on the fence and you look out and some folks are nodding their heads, you just know the right thing to do. All right, we're in Jeremiah chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. This is God's Word. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord... Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word, and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit, Adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name and say, We are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. And now, because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen, and when I called you, you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name, and in which you trust, and to the place that I gave to you and to your fathers, as I did to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight, as I cast out cast all of your kinsmen, all the offspring of Ephraim. As for you, do not pray for this people, or lift up a cry or prayer for them, and do not intercede with me, for I will not hear you. Do you not see what they are doing in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, the fathers kindle fire, and the women knead dough to make cakes for the Queen of Heaven. And they pour out drink offerings to other gods to provoke provoke me to anger. Is it I whom they provoke, declares the Lord? Is it not themselves to their own shame? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my anger and my wrath will be poured out on this place, upon man and beast, upon the trees of the field and the fruit of the ground. It will burn and not be quenched. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat the flesh. For in the days that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I did not speak to your fathers or command them concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. But this command I gave them. Obey my voice and I will be your God and you shall be my people and walk in all the way that I command you that it may be well with you. But they did not obey or incline their ear. 
but walked in their own counsels and the stubbornness of their evil hearts and went backward and not forward. From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them day after day. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. So you shall speak all these words to them, but they will not listen to you. You shall call to them, but they will not answer you. And you shall say to them, This is the nation that did not obey the voice of the Lord their God and did not accept discipline. Truth has perished. It is cut off from their lips. Cut off your hair and cast it away. Raise a lamentation on the bare heights, for the Lord has rejected and forsaken the generation of his wrath. For the sons of Judah have done evil in my sight, declares the Lord. They have set their detestable things in the house that is called by my name to defile it. And they have built the high places at Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it come into my mind. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no more be called Topheth or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. For there they will bury in Topheth, because there is no room elsewhere. And the dead bodies of this people will be food for the birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth, and none will frighten them away. And I will silence in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, for the land shall become a waste." At that time, declares the Lord, the bones of the kings of Judah, the bones of its officials, the bones of the priests, the bones of the prophets, and the bones of the inhabitants of Jerusalem shall be brought out of their tombs. And they shall be spread before the sun and the moon and all the host of heaven which they have loved and served, which they have gone after, and which they have sought and worshipped. And they shall not be gathered or buried. They shall be as dung on the surface of the ground. Death shall be preferred to life by all the remnant that remains of this evil family in all the places where I have driven them, declares the Lord of hosts. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, as we come now to consider what you have said to us, would you help us to hear, cause us to understand, or strengthen our minds even in this moments that they would not wander But more importantly, Lord, open our hearts that we would be sensitive to what the Spirit has to say, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. It is a long uh, section, uh, but I'm trying to do this as it fit together, even though even that's not agreed upon. This, what is called the Sermon Temple is presented here in Jeremiah beginning in verse seven or chapter 7. The chapter begins a new section. So the first six chapters are really kind of a, an introduction. They cover the early years of Jeremiah's history, and now we're looking at something that he did not just one time but regularly. He had a 40-year ministry, so he preached a lot of sermons. And what is captured here is probably not just one sermon that was given at one time, but sections of many sermons that were preached over the course of many times. Now, some scholars understand the the sermon that was given to only be the first 15 verses of chapter 7. Others see it as the portion that we're covering today, and still others understand it to go all the way to chapter 10. 
What's important to understand is that this was all given by God to Jeremiah to deliver. And whether it was delivered only once or many times doesn't really change the nature of the message. I think it's most likely it was delivered many times. Uh, just like a, a preacher who would go around and, and preach in multiple locations, the point for Jeremiah was that the, most people would hear the message. And so he stood in the temple for this point, that the people coming and going from worship would be able to hear on multiple occasions this announcement that God had given for him to proclaim. The location is important. He's standing in the temple. It's not just strategic so that many people will hear, but the content of the sermon itself deals with aspects of worship. It deals with the temple itself. And so where he stands, where the Lord called his people to come and worship him, it matters. It's a strategic position uh, for the content, not just for the proclamation of the sermon. You see, the people had been treating the temple of God with contempt. They had treated it as trivial. They were doing evil throughout the week and then showing up for church on Sunday, so to speak, uh, coming back to the temple to worship and treating it as if it were just good luck. Like they would be safe there from the repercussions of their sins. Like a lair, a secret lair that thieves have that they would run back to to hide so they wouldn't be caught. And so Jeremiah is standing at the gates of the temple in essence to say to them all, you're not safe. You're not safe. This temple will not save you. Now, another important aspect of this is that it's also a movement in history. I mentioned the first six chapters dealt with the early years of Jeremiah's career uh, under the king uh, Josiah, who, as we know, was a righteous king. This portion is likely after that time. Josiah was killed about 609 B.C. by the Egyptian army who came in. There was a lot of the warring back and forth, just as there continues to be in our own day, uh, over territory. And when the Egyptians came in and they were able to kill Josiah, they set, they, they wanted a, a sympathetic ruler in his place. And so they put, picked one of his sons, uh, Jehoahaz, and that did not work out so well. He only lasted three months before they, uh, the, the pharaoh, Necho, pulled him off the throne and puts Jehoiakim, who reigned for 11 years. That is who was reigning when the sermon is given. Now, the text doesn't tell us that, but another text does. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 26 uh, presents this same sermon, more summarized, almost the Cliff Notes version in that, but it's the same sermon, and there the historical details concerning Jehoiakim are revealed. This is maybe just interesting, but it's also important to understand what the content of the sermon is addressing. Where Josiah was a righteous king, his sons were not. He introduced and brought reform. His sons led the people of God away. And great evil was reintroduced in the land. As is often the case, when we are not pursuing God, when we're not drawing near to God, we are falling away. We don't drift toward holiness. It doesn't just happen. If we're not pursuing, trusting God and walking with God, we will slip, fall away, degrade. And that's what is happening here. There's no pursuit of God. You can call it a slippery slope, but whenever we forget his word, when we give him only lip service with our mouths, we drift away from holiness. And so with that background, let's begin looking at the content of the sermon itself. Verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord. 
Now, this might be something that we skip over, but it's important to note that this reminder continues to come out, that this isn't Jeremiah's idea. It isn't as if Jeremiah surveyed the land and thought, these are the important things that I need to address in Judah today. But this message was given to him by God. This idea for prophets is echoed in 2 Peter 1.21, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So this is God's message, another reminder to us of that. As he stands to the entrance, he gets to, 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 to get everybody to hear. It's like standing right there and greeting people, right? You capture everyone because that's the way in and the way out. That was where his position was in the temple. And his message is very simple. Verse 3, amend your ways and your deeds. Very straightforward, a call to repentance. And he ties it to allowing them to stay in the land. So in that is inferred the judgment. If you don't repent, you're not going to get to stay. And we know he's going to send Babylon to carry them off into exile. Yet the people don't seem to make the connection. They're doing all kinds of evil and then walking into the temple as if nothing's wrong. We might think they were ignorant if we only read Jeremiah 7, but we've read the first six chapters. So we know they've been warned. In fact, God says, I've been sending the prophets since I led you guys out of Egypt. I've sent the prophets every day by day, he says in this text. And yet you do not listen, you do not hear. They have been corrected and they refuse the correction. They've also turned the temple into this kind of good luck charm. They have this chant that they say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Verse 4, it's almost this sing song. You almost hear it. I have to hesitate not to sing it, right? It just has this kind of feel. We can imagine what they were doing with it, chanting as if God would protect them and would never allow harm to befall them because after all, it's his temple in their city. Well, we kind of do the same thing. In our own vocabulary, we don't have chants that I know of, but we, we have our words. As Christians, we have words like gospel-focused, Jesus-follower, grace-based, believer. I'm not picking on any of these words. They're all fine. But my point is, is that we can develop our own vocabulary. I mean, in the Reformed world, we have Reformed and Covenantal. You know, Westminster Confession, Sovereignty. You know, we have words that when you get to know people, you kind of measure them by their vocabulary. But have you ever encountered someone that when you first get to know them, they have the right vocabulary, but then as you get to know them, you realize, like Inigo Montoya from The Princess Bride, you keep using that word, but I don't think it means what you think it means, right? You realize they're not making the connection with the vocabulary that they're using and what they mean by those words. We can do the same thing. We can make words and vocabulary trite and meaningless when we don't really understand them. Knowing the right words, having the right vocabulary, attending church services, having a bumper sticker or posting on social media about your faith are not necessarily indicators of holiness. We can do all these things and continue to live duplicitous lives. And so God is calling us today as well, amend your ways, amend your deeds. Then he gives an explanation of what that looks like. He doesn't just say amend your ways and your deeds, but he explains what that looks like. In verses 5 to 7, we have an explanation of verse 3. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place in the land 
that I gave of old to your fathers forever. So here's the explanation. This is how you're to treat each other. Now, in all the old commentaries and books that I read this week, the term social justice is used to describe this. And we used to be able to use that term and understand what we meant. Unfortunately, in recent years, that term has kind of been hijacked to mean, at least in some cases, something very different from justice. It's kind of come to mean the opposite of what justice truly is. And so we can use the term biblical justice to describe what is being captured is. That is, how we are to treat each other and also notice how we are to ensure others are being treated. You see, biblical justice isn't just about me saying, not fair. You know, kids, you don't have to teach them to say this. Right? You can go in the nursery today. If you don't know this happens, you can sign up for nursery next week and experience this. You don't have to teach a kid to say that. They understand very instinctively what they want, and if you take what they want, they consider it unjust, whether it's truly unjust or not. Well, as adults, we don't scream not fair, but we have our own versions of the same thing. We just kind of refine them a little bit, but we do the same thing. But biblical justice doesn't just say not fair. Biblical justice notes unfairness not simply for self but for others. I would argue the focus of biblical justice is actually others-centered. It doesn't mean that you neglect justice for yourself, but your focus, your emphasis is not looking out to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Laying down your life, considering the needs and interests of others more important than yourself. It stands against oppression of the vulnerable. Here they're mentioned, the outsider, the fatherless, the widow in verse 6. Biblical justice is noticing and acting against what God has communicated in His Word is unjust and then standing for righteousness. It's doing the right thing. It's doing the right thing. Proverbs 14.31, Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. 1 John 3.17, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And so God clearly explains to his people what he expects from them. He doesn't say simply amend your ways. He explains what that means. That amend your ways according to my law. Do I've already revealed it to you. Josiah, you know, he, he oversaw it being rediscovered, reintroduced, whether it was just the book of Deuteronomy or the whole Pentateuch. But you guys cannot plead ignorance anymore. You know what it says. Amend your, your deeds and your ways according to my law. In other words, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's how Jesus summarized the law. And this is the message here that God gives his people. Next, he explains what he said to them in verse 4. Remember, verse 4 is the repetitious phrase, the temple of the Lord, temple of the Lord. Well, in verses 8 to 11, he explains what that means. He says, in essence, you have your vocabulary. You think the right words will save you, the right building. You think the offering you give will save you, but you continually break my law. In the, the, the list that he provides in verse 9, we see there are uh, a number of the Ten Commandments given, Commandments 6 through 9, and then the commandment against idolatry is added as well. So they're out there living their lives in opposition to the way that God has revealed that they should live. And then, again, showing up for church on Sunday, so to speak, like the temple will give them some kind of good juju for their lives. 
And he says, and then you come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name and say, we are delivered only to go on doing all these abominations. Then he equates them with a bunch of thieves. You guys are like thieves who have gone out and done your your evil deeds and then run in here to hide like it's a den for robbers. This is the, the, the passage that Jesus was quoting that we read this morning in Mark 11. He's referring back to Jeremiah 7. The point is, is that our motive for worship matters. Our motive matters. What's in our heart matters. We may be able to fool everybody else in our lives, but God sees and knows our hearts. He knows our inmost thoughts. Nothing is hidden from Him. Whether we've walked in disobedience all week long, whether we come to church just to impress other people or to get somebody off our back, or whether we're here to make business contacts so that we can get rich ourselves, He knows He is not fooled. He wants our hearts, not simply our attendance. He wants our fidelity instead of our lip service. He mentions Shiloh. This was where the, 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 the temple was originally set up, or the place of worship, rather, before the temple was set up. And he points to that and says, hey, what I did to that is exactly what will happen here to this temple. They couldn't believe it. They thought it was absurd. Another aspect of Judah's evil is mentioned in verses 16 to 20. They've involved their entire families in this worship of the Queen of Heaven. Now, we're not specifically told which God this was. There's speculation. There's a number of options here. But the point is, is we see the kids gathering the wood, the father stoking the fire, the moms are kneading the dough to make these, these cakes that would be offered with the drink offerings to be poured out to these idols. In other words, they were catechizing their children in evil. They were teaching their children how to live. I have learned one thing in fatherhood. What you do speaks a lot more than what you say. It seems so, so basic. But we we learn this often the hard way. And so because of this, God instructs Jeremiah to stop praying for them. And this is harsh. Stop praying for them? He he turns and he speaks to Jeremiah and says, stop, I'm not going to listen. In essence, he says, you, the people, have plugged your ears. You will not listen to me, so I will not hear you. Now, it's not a permanent ban on prayer. I won't go into the language that's used here in terms of the emphatic no versus the the partial no and so forth. But this is clearly not a permanent ban. We see Jeremiah pray for the people later. But it is a warning. A warning to the people. A warning to the exiles who would one day read this book, the scroll that Jeremiah was recording. And a warning to us today as we read it, that knowing, if we knowingly go against what God has told us to do, that we can't turn to Him and expect Him to answer our prayers according to our will. We note, again, all these portions of the sermon deal with worship. The temple and where he's standing is so important. In verses 21 to 28, God goes after another uh, one of their uh, issues, and that is the sacrificial system. They've, they've turned it into, again, this, this talisman, so to speak. And he uses a bit of irony or even sarcasm in verses 21 to 28. Add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat the flesh. What is he talking about here? Well, the burnt offering is exactly what it sounds like. The burnt offering was to be completely burnt up. It was to be consumed by the fire. The point of it was that it was a true sacrifice. 
It was to be consumed. So in this agrarian culture, an animal was one of your most valuable possessions. And so to go and to burn it up was a true sacrifice. Nobody got any gain from that. That really, to me, is a vivid picture of what it means for us to give unto God. I don't know that we really understand that when we think of our giving, that it ought to look that way, sacrificial. But that's the picture that's given here. But here, God is saying to them in a bit, with a bit of irony, hey, go ahead, have a barbecue, eat the meat. It doesn't matter. You guys can go ahead and enjoy it because I'm not receiving it anyway. Because you're living out here doing all that you want to do in sin, and then you're coming to the temple and offering these sacrifices, acting like I haven't told your fathers what to do, when in fact I did tell your fathers what to do, but I told them what was more important. It wasn't about the sacrifices. It was to obey. Listen and obey. That's what he had told them. Trust and obey, like the little kid's song that we learn. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Like Judah, we're not that different, are we? We can be hard-hearted. We go on doing what we want to do. We make our excuses. We ignore His good and gracious law. We do the things that we want to do. We make up our own schemes to make ourselves feel better about the ways that we ignore His commands. And so in verse 26, the people are called stiff-necked. This is an image linked to cattle who were being yoked that they would resist the yoke, they would be stiff-necked or stubborn. We don't like to think of ourselves this way. We don't live in a culture where we do a lot with animals like this, and so it may be hard to understand. My mom sent me a picture this past week, probably a five-year-old me sitting on our pony, Roy. Roy was white, but he was orange in the picture because Georgia dirt is red and he loved to run the lay down and run or uh, roll in the dirt. So there I am sitting on my orange pony. Uh, It reminded me as I was studying this passage when we first moved to that property, Roy came with the property. And my dad decided that we should be able to ride him and so he got a saddle and decided to break this pony. Um, For any young people who hear that and think that my dad was cruel, that doesn't mean what it sounds like. It just means that you teach the animal to let humans sit on the back of it. There was no breaking anything or hurting anything. But as you start the process, and we four kids were standing safely on the other side of the fence where we couldn't be hurt, we watched as this stiff-necked animal showed my dad how much he thought of the idea of him getting on his back. And as he bucked him off again and again and again, I remember, I think my mom was crying. I think we were all a little upset because we really didn't appreciate what was going on. But dad persisted, well, this is the picture of Judah. This is what Judah did. They continually bucked God's law. They ignored his gracious commands that he had given them for their good, that they might live abundant lives. They were stiff-necked. And in that hardness of heart, they descended further and further into greater evil. That's the way it works. That's where sin takes us. Sin isn't neutral. It always leads us further into the darkness. And so what started as pagan worship on the hillside, a few charms, a few idols carried along with them, led to this unimaginable practice of killing their own children. began with the worship of Moloch the valley of the son of Hinnom, verse 31. They would put their children in the arms of this brass idol which was surrounded by fire, literally burning their children to death. And why did they do this? 
to appease the God for fertility, there's some irony, and for success in the harvest. And yet today, millions of babies are sacrificed for the same reasons. That people might have more money, more time, and more convenience to do what they want. Our hearts are not at all different from Judas. God says to them, that valley will become known as the valley of slaughter, not because of what they did, but because of what He was going to do to them for what they did. They would be slaughtered in that valley. And then in chapter 8, verses 1 to 3, another horrible picture. Graves are desecrated. This doesn't strike us in the way that it would have struck the, the, the Judeans, but the, the desecration of the grave was a, was a horrible, uh, 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 it was an affront to their honor. And so here we see that even the dead are not safe. They will be ashamed as Babylon comes in and exposes the graves. They take the bones and scatter them out under the, the heavenly lights that they had worshipped in their pagan practices, another picture of judgment that would fall on Judah. Notice it's everybody. No one is spared. From the kings, to the prophets, to the priests, to every inhabitant of the city of Jerusalem, none will be excluded. And yet, those who survive the judgment, they'll all see the judgment, participate in the judgment. Those who live will wish that they had died. They will envy those who had died, the ones carried off into exile. Can you imagine how horrible that is? To wish that you were dead. So here this sermon Jeremiah gives 2,600 plus years ago. It still stands, doesn't it? It still speaks to us today. And preachers are told to have three points. That's not something I very, do a very good job of. So I'll just refer now from here on to Jeremiah because he doesn't either. So uh, I'll just say that Jeremiah is my example. I count at least six points in his sermon. He talks about biblical justice. Micah 6 eight. He has told you, a man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Second, no superstitious faith. Colossians 2.8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to the human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Three, no pagan practices. 1 Timothy 6, guard what's been entrusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and in so doing they have wandered from the faith. Four, sin is a slippery slope. Romans 1.28, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, He gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. Fifth, God will not be mocked. Galatians 6.7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will He also reap. And then finally, the call throughout is this call to deep repentance. James 4.9, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord. And He will exalt you. You see, the message was given not to hurt them, but to help them. The message was given that they might turn from their ways, amend their ways, that judgment wouldn't come, that they would be able to stay in the land. It is why God's law is such a good gift to us. We say that God's law shows us our own sinfulness. We don't measure up. That's one of the things we see when we read it. We, we recognize we can't meet the standard. It's like a mirror that's in front of our face saying, you don't measure up. You may find that hurtful, but if it's true, and it is, 
It is necessary for us to hear it. You think of the colloquialism, egg on your face. Who wants to be told they have egg on their face, right? No one wants to be told that unless you have egg on your face. Then you'd like someone who is kind to maybe quietly tell you so that you can wipe the egg off your face. Because we don't want the shame. We want to deal with the problem. And the problem is we're sinners. We haven't measured up. We've transgressed the law of God. And so while the law shows us our sin and our need for salvation, it also shows us that it is our God who gives us our salvation. God reveals himself to us in his law. And one of the things God told his people in Exodus 34, he says, he says this of himself, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's when he speaks to you. That's who he is. In his mercy and his love, he did send a Redeemer, Jesus Christ, to deal with the problem of our sin, to wipe it away, to deal with God's wrath, and in doing so, then, to credit us with his righteousness. You see, what we couldn't keep, the law, what we couldn't fulfill in the law, Jesus came and did do. And so now that law that has been fulfilled in Christ points us in the way to go. This is what we talked about last week, the good way that we would walk in it. The law shows us how we're to live, to live a good and abundant life. The people of Judah, they had been given the law. God allowed them in His providence to rediscover it. It had been lost in the temple closet somewhere back, buried under the dust. And under the reign of Josiah, it was rediscovered. But the next generation, what did they do? They treated it with disdain. And how did that, how did that work out? Well, we see where they went, where they ended up. The slippery slope of sin. They would not listen. They hardened their hearts. And so for that, He promises to send correction through judgment. For us, it's a great relief on the other side of the cross to hear the words, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? What a comfort it is to know that, that even when we sin, that we have only to confess our sin to Him, and He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But know this, God will not be mocked. We cannot treat Him with contempt. He sees and knows our hearts. We can't fool him with our external deeds the way we're able to fool each other. So the question is not, am I not in church today? Didn't I put something in the offering plate? Didn't I sing the songs and read the prayers? No, the question that we should all be asking is this. Who are you trusting right now in this moment for the forgiveness of your sins? What are you looking to to ensure that you are righteous before our holy God? Where is your only hope found in this moment and every moment forward? If the answer is yourself, your good deeds, your high hopes, your aspirations, or anything other than Jesus, then this is a call to turn to Him because He is our only hope. The book of Jeremiah is a hard book to look at. I'm reminded of that almost weekly. People, people have said to me, you pick some hard books to go through. Um, it is a hard book. If we lose sight of God's redemptive plan throughout history, if we forget redemption and we just stick our noses in Jeremiah, it's a hard book to read. These are hard words to hear. But when we remember his work of redemption, 
we see the hope. You see, the hopelessness you may feel in the midst of this book is designed to point you to hope in Christ alone. The dread that you may feel when you read the horrors that Judah would face in being disciplined are designed to point you to the horrors that Jesus had poured out upon himself in your place and in my place. He took the just judgment of God upon himself. The disgust you may feel when you think of a God who would perpetrate such judgments or allow such griefs is designed to point you to the graciousness of our Savior who has promised to deliver us from evil. All evil. Our evil and the evil that has been done toward us. He's promised to deliver us from this. He will renew all things. Us and this broken world. We can't make sense of it. He will one day make everything right. When we look at Judah, we grieve. We grieve over the city of Jerusalem that's portrayed in this book, all of her sins and sorrows laid out for us. And yet we do not lose hope because we look forward to a new city to come. A new Jerusalem. As John described, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you help us to see the hope that is ours in this new city? We look back and we see the destruction that was promised to Jerusalem that did in fact come when the temple was destroyed. We think of our own cities and our own country and the, just the degradation of the culture in which we live. We know that these cities will not last forever. We know that our citizenship is not in this world, but in your kingdom. And so we long for that new city when everything will be made right. Lord, there, we've seen not just in this, this chapter of Jeremiah, but we, we've experienced some awful things in our lives. Things that we can't understand and explain and make sense of. And so we come to you as the only one who can redeem and comfort us. Who can redeem what we've been through and comfort our hearts in the process. Lord, help us to know that you are near. Help us to know that you will complete what you have started. Help us to know that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Make our hearts glad because of our Savior. Lift us up, fix our eyes on Him, and help us to walk in trust and obedience for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.